0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Lamentations chapter 1. This morning we'll be looking at Lamentations chapter 1 verses 12 through 22. And as we studied in this chapter a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Lamentations chapter 1 is really a poetic depiction of the devastation that took place at the fall of Jerusalem. Um, As with the rest of the book of Lamentations, Lamentations chapter 1 is dealing with what happened when the Babylonians came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem and took the people into captivity. But not only is this chapter a poetic depiction of of that devastation at the same time we understand that it's also a startling picture of the complete and utter uh, devastation of sin so not only does it poetically describe what happened to jerusalem at the same time we recognize that it warns us of what happens when we follow after sin Or maybe to put it more simply, Lamentations chapter 1 reminds us sin is devastating. In particular, verses 12 through 22 of chapter 1 provide a graphic reminder of the internal grief that sin will cause in our own lives. Sometimes it's important for us to go back and think through these things, because Our lives are so permeated by the effects of sin that we've almost been desensitized to the presence and the impact of sin. We're just so used to walking around with bumps and bruises and aches and pains that that's normal. And in this world it is, but it shouldn't be. That's the effect of sin. We're so used to walking around battling anxieties and uh, ungodly emotional responses to our circumstances that... It just seems like that's the way it is well it might be the way it is but it's not the way it's supposed to be that's an effect of sin it might seem normal for us to have awkward relationships and relational conflict in this world and people we just don't like and people who just don't like us it seems normal but really that's just an effect of sin You see, we've become so used to it that we're desensitized to the negative effects that sin has on our lives and in our world. I remember I grew up right around the corner from a dairy farm, and if you had asked me in those early years of my life, until I was about a teenager, what does a dairy farm smell like, I probably wouldn't have been able to tell you. I don't know. I don't know what a dairy farm smells like. Why? I live around the corner from one. I just that just that's air, right? But then the dairy farm went out of business. The cows went away. And a couple of years later, if you would asked me what a dairy farm smelled like, I would have been able to say, you know, I drove past one and I know exactly what it smells like. But when I was living by it, I was completely desensitized to it. I don't know, that's just normal. Friends would come over, oh, dude, what? I don't smell it. But as soon as it was gone and then I would drive past another dairy farm, I'd say, oh, now, now I understand. A similar thing happens in our life with sin, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. From from the perspective of an unbelieving heart, an unbeliever is completely deceived by original sin and unable to discern sin's presence or effects. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says that the human heart is evil. It is wicked. It is sick beyond all measure. It is self-deceived. You say, why don't my unbelieving friends and family members get it? Why don't they see it? Their hearts are so given over to sin that they're deceived by it. They're so desensitized to sin and its effects that they see no need to repent and they see no need to run to a Savior for the forgiveness of their sins. For us as believers, we've been made new, we've been given a new heart by the Holy Spirit, and yet, even then, we have the remaining effects of sin, the remaining pollution of sin in our life and in our inclinations that continue to blind us quite often to the effects and the dangers of sin. Oftentimes, our discernment is clouded because we're blind to the true nature of sin. That's something of what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Romans chapter 7 when he said, why do I do what I don't want to do and what I want to do I don't do? It's that remaining sin that that blinds you and hinders your discernment. You see, even as believers, our flesh... That is, our fallen weakness continues to be attracted by the allure of sin. It's so tantalizing, isn't it? It would be so much easier to get out of this situation if I just told a little lie. It's tantalizing. It's alluring our lust seeks the easiest path, not the path of holiness. Our lust desires gratification, not sanctification. And in the process, what do we do? We lose track of of the wickedness and the awful effects that sin will have in our life. And it's this gravitational pull towards sin... That's why we need to be constantly and consistently confronted with the truth from God's Word about sin and about holiness. Constantly, we just have to be confronted with the truth of God. Just to make sure, man, I hope I haven't been blinded by this gravitational pull towards sin. Well, what's the only way to check that? You can't go deeper into your heart to check yourself, can you? No. What are you going to do? You're going you're to keep plunging deeper within. And man, how do I feel when I do this? Don't trust that. i tell you what, sin most of the time feels really good when you do it. Doesn't it? Can't go deeper in there to figure out whether you're on the right path or whether you're blind to sin. Where are you going to go? you got to go back to the Scriptures. And when we do go back to the Scriptures, we understand that not only does sin have devastating consequences in our lives, But so, too, when we go back to the Scriptures, we recognize that sin will produce devastating grief in your soul. You might put it this way. Sin will eat you alive from the inside out. You say, what does that look like? Well, one of the effects on your soul that sin will have is sin will dull your conscience until there's virtually nothing left to protect you from delving deeper into sin. You know how it goes. You do something that you're pretty sure is wrong. You feel guilty about it. Your conscience is bothered by it. And rather than run back to scriptures and say, is my conscience right here? Should I have done that? Was this lawful? Was this wise? Was this honoring to the Lord? Rather than investigating it, you just say, oh, well, the the guilt kind of wore off. And you go on with your life. And then what happens? You do it again. And that guilt decreases. And you haven't investigated it with God's Word. You, you haven't gone to the Lord about it. You haven't gone back to the truth of Scripture about it to see, should my conscience be bothering me or not? You haven't done any of that. However, it doesn't feel as bad, so it must not be bad. So what do you do? You do it again. And you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again. And so your conscience is so dulled that you find yourself participating in this act, not knowing whether it's sin or not, and not caring Look, the Lord gave us a conscience to protect us from falling off completely into sin. And, and when we chase after sin, it eats us from the inside out by dulling our conscience and defiling our conscience. Your conscience is not infallible. That's why you got to go back and check it with Scripture. You got to go seek wise counsel out. But your conscience is given to you as an aid from God. And sin will just rip that conscience up and make it completely unuseful. At the same time, sin will eat you from the inside out by by leading you into endless conflict as you employ worldly wisdom to pursue worldly pleasures. That's what James chapter 3 is talking about. Where does all the bickering and where does all the fighting come from? Well, it doesn't come from heavenly, God given wisdom. And every conflict on this planet, there's worldly wisdom, worldly lust that's driving it. If not on both sides, then at least on one side. And by the way, if you're ever in a conflict and you think to yourself, I am the one who is completely godly and they are the ones who is completely wrong, (laughs) probably not. You might be 75% wrong or right and 25% wrong or whatever. But guess what? Wrong is wrong. You've got to examine that. I mean, what James is writing in James chapter 3 is when all these dissensions are coming on and you're constantly in conflict with other people, the problem is that you're chasing after worldly desires with worldly wisdom. I mean, if you're here today and you're like, man, I just can't seem to get along with people, that should be a big blinking red light. That's what sin does. It'll tear you up from the inside. It'll put you in constant conflict with others. Additionally, the more you follow after sin, the more you're allowing your lusts and craven desires to control your life instead of the Holy Spirit. Every Every time you choose gratification over sanctification, you empower the next temptation it feels like if I just do this, it'll feel better and it'll be over. And then it kind of does feel that way until the temptation comes back the next time. And then what happens? It's even stronger than it was before. Why? Because there's no self-control there. You're not training yourself to deny your lust. You're not training yourself to to control yourself. You're not submitting to the spirits. And so the more you allow those sinful inclinations to exercise themselves, guess what happens? The stronger they get. And so in all these ways, sin will consume you from the inside out, putting your inner man in total turmoil. You want your heart to flutter around like a dying butterfly all the time? (laughs) You want to live with constant heart palpitations, anxiety, stress, then you know what you do? You just keep plunging deeper and deeper into sin. See, the Lord promised that the joy and peace of salvation comes as we walk humbly submitted and in faith behind him. So what we need to understand is that as we saw in our study last time in Lamentations, sin has devastating consequences all around us in our life. It'll ruin our lives. But what I want you to see today is not only will it ruin your life all around you, but it will ruin you in your deepest core of who you are. It will consume your soul. And we get a glimpse of the devastating internal nature of sin in these verses this morning, Lamentations 1, 12 through 22. You see, and, and... Verses 1 through 11, the prophet focuses on what happened to Jerusalem. So kind of the devastation of sin from an outside perspective. This is what happened to them. And Jerusalem is personified as a widow. She endured this. She went through this. But now, in verse 12, there's a change in the pronouns. It's not she anymore. It's me. It's me. In other words, now the widow is speaking. It's not sin from an outside perspective. It's sin from an internal perspective. And as we work through these verses this morning, what I want you to be reminded of, or maybe instructed for the first time, is that no matter how good sin feels in the moment, sin will destroy your inner man, your soul, your heart. Specifically, Lamentations 1, 12-22 points out 11 sources of internal grief that are connected with a life of sin. Now, note, as we go through these, this does not exhaust every possible source of grief and internal strife that comes from sin. And not everyone will experience all of these in the same way. But together, this list demonstrates what sin will eventually do to your soul if you let it reign unchecked in your life. For the believer, sin will lead to grief in this life that will rob you of fruit and joy and the opportunity to bring glory to your Savior. And for the unbeliever, sin will lead to unceasing and unimaginable grief in hell. That's the last stop on the sin train. And along the way, it's not very fun either. In fact, look at the first source of grief in verse 12. Here we read about grief that comes from what you might call public scorn. Verse 12 says, Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow which was brought upon me which the lord inflicted on the day of his fierce anger you see in this verse we see travelers passing by jerusalem passing by this widow as she sits there and and, and gawking at the destruction you might you might say this is kind of like those rubberneckers on the interstate who who slow everybody down because they have to see Who's getting a ticket or something like that? You know, There's a deer on the side of the road. Everybody has to slow down and look. And all of a sudden, next thing you know, it's gridlock. Or, or maybe a biblical illustration would be, remember the parable of the Good Samaritan? You've got the guy lying there, beat up and almost dead. And, and, and you've got the, the two Jews that, that walk past, the Jewish leaders that walk past. And what do they do? They just look at him. That's what's going on here. And, and, and as these gawkers walk past, Jerusalem seeks pity from them. Seeks pity from the surrounding uh, nations. Look and see, is there any sorrow like mine? Nobody's gone through what we've gone through. And that may or may not have been true. That's often the refrain of somebody who's going through something difficult, isn't it? (laughs) Nobody's ever gone through what I've gone through. Yeah, I probably have. Probably have. Maybe in the case of Jerusalem it was different because she had a relationship with God and that was ripped away in all of this and so her sorrow was deeper. But the point here is she's looking for pity from the nations walking past and looking at her and you know what she receives? No pity but scorn. In fact, just listen to chapter 2 verse 15. Lamentations, it says, All who pass along the way Clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? What what are they doing? They're mocking Jerusalem. They're mocking the people of God. And, And to compound the sorrow of this public humiliation, of this public scorn, it's not just the nations who have scorned Jerusalem, it is God Himself. This is where sin leads you. The sorrow, where did the sorrow come from? Well, it says in verse 12, the Lord, Yahweh, inflicted it upon Jerusalem. Jerusalem's defeat was not a private matter. It took place before a watching world. And so too, Jerusalem's defeat was not an unspiritual matter. It took place before the presence in the eyes of the Lord. God publicly punished Israel for her sin. And by the way, Jerusalem's public scorn was merely a foretaste of the public scorn that will take place in the final day of the Lord. Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back to judge the living and the dead. Christ is coming back to expose the deeds of all men. If you think there's no sorrow like this sorrow in 586 when Jerusalem fell, you wait till the full and final day of the Lord when His scorn will be public against all sinners who rejected His Son Christ Jesus. Do you want to know where sin is leading you? You want to know what it's going to do to your soul? Sin will ultimately lead to the sorrow of being publicly scorned by God before the nations. Happen to Jerusalem here, and it will happen in the final judgment to all who reject Christ. And notice also in verse 13, we find a second source of grief. And here we read about the grief that comes from an inescapable judgment. An inescapable judgment. Verse 13. From on high he sent fire. Into my bones he made it descend. He spread a net for my feet. He turned me back. He has left me stunned. Faint all the day long. You see, this verse makes it clear that what Jerusalem experienced when the Babylonians came and leveled the city, that was the judgment of God. Notice it says, from on high. Where's on high? That's on heaven. That's heaven. That, that pictures the Lord seated in the heavens, sovereign over everything that was taking place. And from his sovereign seat, what did he send? He sent fire. And of course, this fire represents the wrath of God. Remember Sodom and Gomorrah? God poured out his wrath, his fire on the cities of the valley. Of course, this wasn't a literal fire that took down Jerusalem, but it was the wrath of God through the Babylonians that destroyed Jerusalem. And notice, as they're describing it, it's not just a description of God's wrath from the outside. It's a description of God's wrath and what it will do to your inside. It says that he sent this fire into my bones. He made it descend. What's that mean? She felt it. Jerusalem felt it. at her her deepest core. This wasn't a slap on the wrist that you feel on the outside. God's wrath penetrated all the way to her core. And there was nothing that she could do to escape it. It says, He spread a net for my feet. Here, God is pictured as a trapper trapping an animal. If you're familiar with the history, by the way, King Zedekiah who was the propped up king in the siege, he tried to escape. He tried to escape the wrath of God through the Babylonians. What happened to him? Well, he was captured. His family was killed and his eyeballs were plucked out. Why? There was no escape. There was no escape. Jerusalem was left stunned, faint all the day long. It was inescapable. Jerusalem was left to suffer without strength because you cannot outrun the judgment of God. You understand that, don't you? You understand that, right? Sin will ultimately lead to the sorrow of facing an inescapable judgment from a holy God. Hebrews 9.27 encapsulates it pretty well. It's appointed once for a man to die, then comes judgment. If you are in this room, one of two things is going to happen. Either Christ is going to come back or you're going to die. Something tells me that everyone you've ever met has either already died or is going to die, right? You understand that, that every day we live is a day that we are preparing to die, right? if you spend those days storing up wrath and judgment for yourself by rejecting Christ, by disobeying the Lord and rebelling against Him, then understand this, that your day of judgment will come and it will be inescapable. Inescapable, just like Jerusalem. And notice in verse 14, notice a a third source of grief where we read about the grief that comes from enslaving sin. We've kind of been looking forward to, to to the future of where sin's leading, but notice what it says here in verse 14. My transgressions were bound into a yoke. By his hand they were fastened together. They were set upon my neck. He caused my strength to fail. The Lord gave me into the hands of those whom I cannot withstand. This is a scary verse. At the beginning of verse 14, it says, my transgressions were bound. Literally, I weaved my transgressions together is how you could translate that. I weaved them together like the strongest rope that you could imagine. And then what happened? Well, the Lord allowed me to weave my sins together and then He fastened them to me like an unbreakable yoke. In other words, sin had complete mastery over me. That's what she's saying. I kept following my transgressions and and, and always in the back of my mind thinking I'll just get out of this when I want to get out of this. And so suddenly I was so deep in sin. I was so deep in the consequences of sin. I was so deep in the sorrows of sin that there was no longer any escaping it. Jerusalem says I was without strength. That's what happens to a yoked animal. A yoked animal is a broken animal. No will to resist anymore. That's what happens when you continue to pursue sin. It gains mastery in your life. Your lust controls you. You have no power, no strength to fight against it. Yeah, sin was appealing in the moment. But once God punished them for their sins, once they realized how deep in their sins they were, guess what? It wasn't enjoyable anymore. It was enslaving. By the way, this is a side note that most likely means we're not going to get through this whole passage this morning. <laughs> but when someone tells you, man, I don't want to be a Christian. you got all these rules. You're, you're bound up in them. You don't get to have any fun. You, just, you guys are sticking to muds. You know what? The fact of the matter is, as believers in Christ Jesus, we are the only ones who are actually free. And all the rules that we have, the whole rest of the world has those rules too. They're just ignoring them. They can't obey them. In fact, our book of the month this month, a little book in the back, is called Free to Be Holy. What are we? We have been set free. The yoke of sin has been broken in our life. As believers in Christ Jesus, we don't have to obey sin anymore. I can have all kinds of lustful desires and not have to act on them. What am I? I am free to pursue holiness and the power of Jesus Christ. He, through his death, burial, and resurrection, he has broken the penalty of sin in my life, and he has broken sin's mastery over me. I have a new master, and his name is Jesus Christ. I don't have to obey sin anymore. That's what that means. But here's the thing. If you don't repent and turn to Christ, if you continue to live with sin as your master, the same will not be true of you. In fact, what will be true of you is what was true of Jerusalem. Your transgressions will be bound upon you as a yoke. Eventually, God will hand you over to your sin. He will remove all the restraining graces in your life. This is Romans 1 territory here. God hands the sinner over into what they want. And what they want is not good and they don't find out until it's too late. I've seen this happen. I've seen this happen. If you're living a secret life of sin, you need to repent and deal with that now. I've seen people live a secret secret life of sin claiming to be believers, claiming to be Christians for decades. Only after all that, for everyone around them to realize, wait a minute, there was a secret life of sin they never dealt with. And it got bigger, and it got bigger, and it got bigger, until God just removed all the restraining graces in their life. What's a restraining grace? Well, kids, if you have parents in your life, that's a restraining grace in your life. You need to listen just for a minute, kids. I know you don't normally pay attention to me that well. No, I'm just kidding. But you need to listen to me. You say, my parents tell me to do stuff I don't want to do. Exactly. That's the point. Your whole life is not about doing what you want to do all the time whenever you want to do it. And so even if what your parents tell you to do is ridiculous, as long as it's not a sin, you should do it and be thankful that the Lord is training you to submit rather than always do what your lust wants you to do. That's a restraining grace in your life. If you're married, your spouse is a restraining grace. If you have a ministry where people are looking up to you, and if you fall, that's going to affect those people. Guess what? That's a restraining grace in your life. The government is a restraining grace in our life. If I go out and commit a crime, I'll get arrested and thrown in jail. That's a restraining grace that keeps me from doing that. I mean, not that I had any plans, but you get the idea. Those are all restraining graces in our life. So so what does it mean when God hands someone over to their sin and lets their sin be wrapped on them like a yoke? You know what that means? It means he just starts pulling the restraining graces out of their life. It's not a place you want to be. It's not a place you want to be enslaved to sin. Because notice a fourth source of grief, grief in verse 15. Here we read about a grief that comes from crushing wrath. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden, as in a winepress, the virgin daughter of Judah. This is the wrath of God being poured out on these people. They trusted in their mighty men, their their warriors, their Navy SEALs. Guess what? The Lord rejected that. Get out of here. They're dead. They're gone. Okay, well, what about these new recruits? All the seasoned soldiers got killed in the battle. What about the new recruits? What about all these young guys? Crushed. It's interesting. It says here that the Lord summoned an assembly. That word assembly there is the word that's used to describe the Old Testament feast. When God called all of his people to Israel to worship him. Now, this is a totally different assembly. This isn't assembly for God's people to worship him. This is an assembly for God's people to be punished. Seasoned soldiers, gone. New recruits, gone. What What about the new generation? Well, there is no new generation because it says that the virgin jo- daughters of Judah have been trodden as in a winepress. In other words, you hope in your military, I crushed it. I poured out my wrath on it. And this is vivid language, I understand. Wine press. what do you do with a press? You throw a bunch of grapes in it and you trod on them. You crush them. And then out of a pipe, out of a hole that you've got there, the grape juice comes out. You understand the picture here, don't you? There are no grapes. It's people in the wine press, and it is their blood pouring out of the funnel. And by the way, this is a picture that the book of Revelation picks up on to describe God's final judgment. I mean, this is, this is just a foretaste of what is in store for all those who reject the Lord. Revelation chapter 14, verses 18 and 19, you've got the angels here, and it says another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over fire, wrath, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had a sharp sickle, put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung its sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. All those grapes, it's all those who have rejected the Lord and continued into, in their sin. Again, Revelation nineteen fifteen again picks up on this same imagery. It says, from his mouth, this of course is when the Lord Jesus Christ comes back. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. What in the world? Think about that. Think about what the the fury of the winepress, of the wrath of God Almighty would be like. The same God who, who, who merely by the spoken word of His mouth created the entire universe. The God who sits enthroned in sovereignty, controlling every detail simultaneously and perfectly. The Most High God. When the Most High God pours out the fury of His wrath on a people, it is unimaginable. What happened to Jerusalem? It is a preview. It is a warning of the crushing wrath that all will experience who continue in their sin and reject Christ. As Romans chapter 2 says, those who by their life are storing up wrath for themselves in the age to come. And we just need to pause for a minute. This is heavy stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's right here. This is what, this is what God's revealed. This is what it's saying. But this, this is heavy stuff. I'm, I am studying these things in depth all week and I'm just coming out of the office like beat up. We stop for a minute and say, wait a minute, okay, that's that is a stunning thought. How can I be saved from that? Scriptures are clear that we are all sinners. We all deserve to be in that wine press and crushed for all of eternity for rebelling against an infinitely good God. The moment we first sinned, God would have been absolutely just and right to, to, to condemn us in that moment. So how is it that sinners like you and I, that's what we are. We're just a bunch of sinners together looking out for one another and going back to the truth together. How is it like that sinners like us can avoid the wrath of the Almighty God? And of course the answer is that we had to have somebody who would bear that wrath on our behalf, didn't we? We had to had somebody, we can't bear up under that wrath. I can't go into the wine press of God's wrath and survive that. I can't bear up under that. I, I, I can't survive the scrutiny of God's holiness. Are you kidding me? Just, just, just a sliver of God's holiness slices me wide open and exposes me as a sinner. Now, if I'm going to survive the wrath of God against sin, I have to have someone who will bear that wrath for me and do so perfectly. And that is exactly what we have in the person of Christ Jesus. When the fullness of time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, in other words, human, just like us, born under the law. In other words, He lived righteously. He followed all the same righteous requirements that we did. Born of a woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who were under the curse of the law so that we might become the sons of God. When Jesus Christ hung on that cross, you understand what He was doing, right? When Jesus Christ hung on that cross, He was bearing on our behalf the wrath of God. When the darkness fell over the earth, what was that? That was a sign of God's wrath on Christ Jesus he removed the light of his fellowship with the son in ways that we cannot imagine and instead placed upon him the burden and the wrath of sin and in that moment of bearing the wrath of the father what did jesus cry out my god my god why hast thou forsaken me the forsakenness of god is the wrath of him isaiah 53 says that christ was was crushed on our behalf. It's the exact language we find in Lamentations, isn't it? He bore that wrath. But here's the thing. If I tried to bear the wrath of God, I'd have to bear it forever and ever and ever because I couldn't survive it. Christ, because of His infinite perfection as God and because of His actualized real perfection as a man, He was able to bear that wrath on our behalf and then say, it is finished. Look, that's the only hope that we have. That's the only hope that we have. And if you reject that hope, if you reject the Lord Jesus Christ, if you will not bow your knee to him in submission and faith to him, Understand this, sin is leading you towards the sorrow of crushing wrath. You say, I'll avoid it somehow. I'll get by. God wouldn't really do that to me, would He? Well, look at verse 16. We have a fifth source of grief in verse 16. Here we read about the grief that comes from inevitable defeat. For these things I weep. My eyes flow with tears for a comforter is far from me, one to revive my spirit. My children are desolate for the enemy has prevailed. For decades now, For decades now, God's people have been saying, He won't really punish us. For decades now, they've been saying, We got the temple. He wouldn't destroy that. For decades now, they've been headlong diving into sin and at the same time saying, We'll get by. We'll get by. We're probably doing more good things than bad things. All that came to an end when God poured out His wrath on them. There, there, there was no more laughing through sin. There was no more joking about sin. There was only eyes flowing with tears. And, and, and as Jerusalem looks around for comforters, who does she find? No one. She rejected the Lord, so there was no comforter there. All those nations that she had pursued sin with, where were they? They were mocking her. There's no one to share in this grief with Jerusalem. She was completely alone in her inevitable defeat. She presumed upon the patience of the Lord. She thought that Jerusalem would never be defeated, and she was wrong. Her sin led to the sorrow of total defeat, and that's where sin always leads to. Don't think. Don't think that you can avoid the pain of sin. Don't think that you can cover up sin. Don't think by some external deeds you can deal with sin on your own. Doesn't work that way. If you're a believer and you're in some kind of secret sin, guess what? The Lord's going to bring that out, for your good. For your good, in ways that you never even want to imagine. In fact, remember. Numbers, chapter 32, verse 23. This would be a good passage for family worship and a nice little resource in your parenting toolbox. I want you to get there because I want you to see this. I especially, if you're here today and the Lord has you under conviction because you have some secret sin in your life that nobody knows about and you don't want to deal with it because you love it and you cherish it, I want you to see these verses, this verse with your own eyes. This is how God warned the people of Israel. Numbers chapter 32, verse 23. But if you will not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. You can't hide it. You can't hide it even if you think that you have hidden it, I guarantee you that whatever that sin is that you think that you're hiding your life, I guarantee you that it's not a hidden sin at all. I guarantee you that someone has seen you commit that sin. I guarantee you that somebody knows that you're following after that lust. I guarantee you. I know for a fact that somebody's seen you sin. You know how I know that? The Lord has seen it. The Lord has seen it. And you better hope you better hope if you're a believer, you better hope he helps you get that out so that you can get help and you can repent of it and deal with it cuz you don't want to go where sin takes you all the way. The end stop is inevitable defeat. Sin not dealt with through the gospel, sin not dealt with through repentance in accordance with the truth, the truth will lead to inevitable defeat. If you're here today and you're not a believer and you say, man, I'm just going to get by. The Lord will be kind to me, I'm sure. The Lord is kind, but He said exactly how He's kind in His Word. You've got to submit to that. you got to submit to that. If you're here and you say, well, I've done more good than bad. Look, those sins are going to find you out. They're going to be made plain. Not just to everybody, but most importantly to the judge, to the Lord. He knows. Why go into that day without a Savior? Why go into that day not trusting in Christ Jesus? And, and if you're here and you are a believer and you're dealing with these sins, let me just encourage you, deal with it. One of, one of the greatest hindrances to holiness and peace and joy in the life of a believer is insufficient fake repentance. Repentance. When the Lord is kind enough to show you sin. We, we see this verse and we think, man, the Lord is vindictive. He's going to make my sin get found out. Look, if the Lord is kind enough to show you your sin, you better deal with it. You better deal with it. And if you won't, guess what? The Lord is kind enough that He will let others see that sin so that they can help you deal with it. That's not vindictiveness. That's kindness. When the Lord convicts us of sin, we have to be ready to submit to the Lord's judgment of that. When we're reading through the Scriptures and we say, that is not my life, we have to be willing to humble ourselves into the Word of God. What does that mean? What does that look like? Well, one thing it looks like is confess it. When the Lord convicts you of something, you go before Him in prayer that moment and say, you're right, Lord. That is sin, and I know it. I know it. Confess it. And then you start repenting of it. And I'm not talking about like the, the, the fake repentance where you say, man, I'm really convicted because I acted sinfully towards my wife. And I better do a better job next time. But I'm not going to tell her any of that. No, that's pride. You go back and you repent it, of it. You deal with it. You recognize what's going on in your heart. Don't go halfway and say, that was sinful. And then just walk away from the deal. You say, that was sinful. As best I can tell, here's what was going on in my hearts. Here's what I wanted. Here's how I need to repent of that. And here's how I knew, who I need to go to to seek their forgiveness of. And here's who I need to go to for help so that I won't get into that again. You say, why would you so thoroughly deal with sin in your life? Because of what Lamentations chapter 1 tells us about the dangers of sin. When we just flippantly feign repentance when we see sin in our life. It's because we don't understand how dangerous it is. Let me tell you what. If you were in the adult Sunday school class this morning, you heard an elaborate illustration of flesh-eating bacteria. Listen to the tape. It's uh, pretty interesting. But let me tell you what. If I told you you had some kind of flesh-eating bacteria, but it was just in your pointer finger, or some other kind of deadly disease, but it was going to travel throughout all your body. You know what you do? As quick as you could, you'd find a cleaver and you'd just go ahead and you'd chop that thing right off. Why? To save your life, because you understand how dangerous it is. Or maybe if you don't have the stomach for it, you'd have somebody else to do it. That's what we got to do with sin. We've got to cut it off, and then we have to be honest, when we will not cut it off, when we keep making a provision for the flesh, what do you do? You go to somebody else and you hand them the cleaver and say, this is what's going on in my life, cut it out. You just cut it right off. You hold me accountable. You bring me back to the truth. Why? Because sin leads to inevitable defeat. You're not going to beat this one. You may be the guy that skates through life, leaves late for the airport, but somehow the flight gets delayed and so you still get on, pulls through the drive through at McDonald's one minute after they're closed and they say, well, we'll just give you all our food that we got left over for free. You might be that guy who always skates by i tell you what, you won't skate by on this one. Your sin will find you out, just like it did for Israel. You'll have no comforters. You'll have no one to revive, to make alive your spirit, because you rejected the only one who could do that, Christ Jesus. The enemy will have prevailed over you. These things are heavy truths, but these heavy truths are what make the gospel so weighty, isn't it? To be delivered from the power of sin and the penalty of sin is no small thing. And as we understand, and even next week we'll finish those 11 out. As we understand the effect that sin has on our soul, and we look to our Savior who has saved our soul, what do we say? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Will you pray with me? Lord, as we come before You, we are stunned by the destructiveness of sin. Lord, Lord, but not stunned enough. Lord, I pray that Your Spirit would open our eyes to just how deadly and dangerous sin is so that we can deal with it according to Your truth and in the power of Your Gospel. Lord, I pray if there's any here within the sound of my voice today who have have never believed in Christ and, and the fate of Jerusalem is just a sneak preview of what their eternity is like. Lord, open their eyes to believe this very day. Lord, if there are any here today who are harboring secret sins, or maybe they've been practicing halfway repentance, Lord, convict them of that. Lord, give them the power to deal with their sins. Give them the power to go to other wise believers to help them to deal with that sin. Lord, we know that Satan would love nothing more than to destroy our church and destroy our souls by tempting us into sin. Lord, we have the truth that we need to combat Satan's ploys. Give us the faith that we need to obey that truth. Help us to have the the trust in you that we need to live according to those truths. And Lord, as we consider all of these things with hearts so full of gratitude and joy, we praise you for the gospel grace that delivers us from all these things lord what jerusalem received is only just a a, a small thimbleful of what we deserve for our sins and yet by sending christ to die for us by raising christ from the dead you have paid the penalty of our sins and you have given us new life Lord, we rejoice in the new life. We rejoice in the freedom from sin that we have. We rejoice in Your loving kindness towards us. Lord, as we meditate on these truths, let us take seriously the matter of sin and let us rejoice greatly at the outpouring of Your grace. We pray all these things in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.